want to begin reading with you from Colossians on a new series. It's a series looking at the church, and I think the relationship between what I want to say and what we've just heard, both from Natalie and from Shirley, is this, that God takes his people, brings them together, and says, actually, I want you to be a certain community for the sake of the world. Church is not for itself, but church is for the sake of the world. And um, we're going to be looking over the next few weeks at the sort of church that Paul writes to in Colossians, the sort of church, the sort of things he prays for, uh, for a church, the sort of things he longs for them to be able to see, and for the sort of uh, ethics that the church gets involved with, the sort of way we treat both one another and those who are not part of our church. What does it mean to be a church? What does it mean to be a growing church? Whenever you become part of a church, it's kind of like, well, what, what's the story that you enter into? What's the, this moment, the story at the moment that you belong when any one congregation? And for those of us who've been around here for a long time, we know we get a bit of a picture of what's this, the moment we're in. And it's clear that what we're in at the moment is a growing phase. We're in a phase where people are finding their way towards us and we have found that actually through the lives of ordinary folks like you and me, we can actually help one another. And ultimately we can help one another find Jesus. And, and I think there's something about being church that says this community of people, this growing community of people, can actually make a difference in individual lives, but actually in bigger scale as well. To do that, there's a number of things that we've got to take on board. The first thing is, we've got to move from being individuals to being a community. And there's no quick way of doing that. That just takes time. But it's kind of like a commitment that says, to be honest, I don't want to just be an individual. I want to belong. I want to be part. I want to build these relationships. And that takes time. There's no shortcut. But it takes intentionality about making sure that you spend time together, making sure that you're building relationships. And the thing is, the truth is, I don't know if any of us in the room, I don't actually, looking around, maybe one or two, but maybe most of us in the room go, I don't feel that confident about that sort of thing. But actually the intention is, we will become a community. It's, it happens when church stops being an event, and it becomes about relationship. We don't go to church, but actually, it's what we are. It's when we see ourselves not primarily as people who are ministered to, but people who are a gathering of ministers. One of the things I love to think about when I'm kind of imagining you, um, when I'm preparing, I kind of try and imagine you. All right? So I can see, I, and in my mind, I get the smilers. And those of you that frown, and you don't know you're frowning, and, um, and I can see you, all right? But the best thing I imagine about you is that when we gather on a Sunday morning in this little round building, we come from all over the place, but it's like a gathering of people who God has been using in different places this week. And we come together for just a brief moment and we go, do you know what the remarkable thing is? I think God took my life and made a difference. And here's the thing, you probably don't think that happens. But the truth is, for those of us 
like we prayed at the beginning, Lord, we surrender, we kneel down before you. He says, I'll take your life and I'll use you in ways that you could never imagine. Your life is more significant than you ever imagined. That's the truth. And so it's not about being minister, it's about being ministers. It's about not being a place just of safety, but a place of risk. And it's a place where we don't want to just be inside, but we want to look outside. But for that to happen, we need some anchor points. And really quickly, I want to talk about some of those anchor points. But before we do that, this place, this letter to Colossians, well, the place was called Colossae. Uh, can you move me forward, uh, uh, Gemma? I don't know that this is going to do it for me. Thank you. Can you see where it is? Uh, it's there. All right, the blue. Now, for those of you that... Oh. Yeah. Let me... Uh, <laughs> speed me up if you think I'm going too slow. <laughs> All right. <laughs> oh, we finished. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, just to give you some idea of where we are. There's Bodrum. So, now you kind of know where you are. Turkey. All right, and this is the med. And uh, you might have, if you've been around in church at all, you might have recognized some of these place names. Laodicea, Ephesus, you might recognize Sardis from, and Philadelphia, Pisidian Antioch. These are, these are sites of early churches written about in Revelation. There's a letter to the Ephesians, and so on and so forth. And here's Colossae, the town or the city of Colossae. And Colossae at one time had been a really prosperous center of wool trade, but it had fallen on hard times when Paul writes his letter. So they're really quite struggling economically, not least because they had two massive earthquakes, one in AD 17 and one in AD 60. So pretty much around the time when Paul is writing to them, they're recovering from a massive earthquake that has stripped some of their uh, ability economically. So this town of Colossae, or city of Colossae, is kind of like... It's, it's I don't want to name places in case you come from them. But think Oldham on a really grey day. <laughs> Apologies if you're from Oldham. I was in Huddersfield uh, last Wednesday on a really horrible grey day. I got fined for being there. Um, I actually did get fined for being there. Not for being there, but being in the wrong place, i.e. a bus lane. But um, I was in Huddersfield, and, and that... It, as I'm thinking of Colossae, I'm thinking of Huddersfield, because Huddersfield was this place that had been a wool centre, and now it's got these brilliant Victorian buildings, but you go to Huddersfield on a Wednesday morning at 9 o'clock in February in the rain, and it's kind of like... Phew. If you've never been to Huddersfield on a Wednesday morning in the rain in February, you haven't missed anything, absolutely. So think about the places you know, and it's kind of like that post-industrial on its uppers. But the other thing about Colossae was, it was a little bit like going into a market with... Okay, Gemma. Back to you now. That sort of thing. Now, you might know these sort of stuff. You know you've got these sort of marketplaces and they have all of this sort of stuff going on. So you've got sort of quasi... Uh, Krishna, Hindu type stuff going on. You've got dream catchers and you've got sort of little bits of... stuff. Um... <laughs> You've got a, a Buddha over here. You've got some sort of symbol of something or other over here. And it's kind of like, and, and then you've got sort of little charms and stuff going on here. We've seen it all over the place. It's kind of like, you know, you see it wherever you are in any sort of market. And um, Colossi was a bit like that in as much as it was a hodgepodge of religious belief. You have the Jews 
who kind of want to keep themselves separate from that. But you've got then this hodgepodge of beliefs about how do you make sense of life. And it, it would, they would use similar sort of stuff. And Paul writes to Christians and says, how do you navigate a world like that? How do you navigate a world like that? Well, this is how he begins. He begins as Paul would always begin a letter. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. And then, and then he begins by saying, when I think of you, I pray for you. Now, Paul hadn't founded this church. It had been founded by this guy in blue called Epaphras. But Paul had heard about this church. And when he thinks about the church in this sort of post-industrial, in our language, post-industrial mixed economy with all sorts of belief structures, he said, I, I see your church and I give thanks for it. And this is what I give thanks for. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you've already heard in the true message of the gospel that's come to you. In the same way, the gospel's bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world just as it's been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who's a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Paul is writing to an early church and saying, the good news that you received is having an effect all over the world. You're part of something much bigger. And that's really important to keep remembering for ourselves. Actually, in the two-thirds world, particularly the majority world, Christianity is just exploding. People are looking for truth all over. And actually, in the most unusual places, God is doing such a work. But what he does is he says, the things that we really give thanks for are three things. Faith, your faith in Jesus, the love you have for God's people, and the faith and the love the spring from the hope. You don't need to be very good at knowing your way around the Bible to know that that faith, hope, and love, they're like the triad. They're the sort of the triangle on which everything in the New Testament is based. What's it about? This faith in Jesus. If you were around last year in church with us, you know that we spent a year looking at Jesus in Mark's gospel. We spent a whole year Thinking about Jesus, brilliant. And um, you remember that when Mark writes his gospel, he writes about Jesus who walks in to a place and he goes to those on the margins and he reminds them that actually your life can be different than you've ever been told. He heals people, he sets people free, he brings them back into community. He goes to the people who've got nothing and he goes, do you know what? All your life, you might have been told that it's that you're not worth much. But I come, Jesus would say, and he comes in the name of the Father, and he goes to those people, and he says, do you know what? God hasn't forgotten you, and he changes their situations. And then he went to the powerful people 
who tried to keep the status quo as it was. And Jesus went and he was never afraid of saying to the powerful people, do you know what? You think you keep yourself safe by holding on to the status quo, but I'm here to tell you there's a better way, a different way, a bigger way of living. Jesus ultimately went to the one who held the status quo the most and stood before Pilate, who was the Roman governor. And they crucified him. And in so doing, it looked like the Romans had won. But actually, the story that Jesus foretold and the story that made sense after the resurrection, was it wasn't that the Romans had won when Jesus was crucified on the cross. It's actually that God won when Jesus was crucified on the cross because God took on. He kind of drained all the evil out and took it on himself. And that's stuff that we saw in our own lives where God began to put us right again and put us together again, where God forgave us and healed us and sorted us out is what God wants to do with the whole world through Christ. And Paul said, when I think of you and I think of your faith in Jesus, that's what matters. And so when we come together and we sing some of those songs this morning, it springs from that sense of, I've received from Jesus and my allegiance is to him. He's put me right. He's brought me back into alignment again. He's making me who who I was designed to be. And loads of you could tell your stories about how God is healing and setting you free and putting you right and putting you back together again. And it's that faith that, how's that happening? It's Jesus that's doing that. He's my only hope. And Paul says, when I, when I look at that, I just give thanks. And then, and, then I, and I know it's real. He goes on, and, and certainly other writers in the New Testament, like John in 1 John's letter, he will say, and you know what? When you worry that you're not sure whether it's true or not, ask yourself this. Do you love people more than you used to? And if you can't help but say, do you know what? Even despite myself, I, do, I am afraid I do love people more than I used to. Now, you may not want to ask this of the people that know you the most, but if you're slightly less grumpy than you used to be, you might not want to ask that of those people who know you the most, but if you are slightly less grumpy, if you are slightly more generous, if there is a sense of, do you know what? I do get more, I am a bit more compassionate. For some of you, it'll be like, do you know what? I find I cry more than I used to. I don't like to admit it, but I do. And, I, and when people are in need, I kind of... I want to respond more. John, when he writes his gospel, he says, if you want to know whether you've got faith in Jesus, ask yourself those sorts of questions. Now, not in a way that beats yourself up. But if you can see any evidence of that, it's evidence that God's done something. And Paul says, I see your faith and I see your love. 
the love you have for one another. Now, the really good news is that is not about feeling. All right? Because some of us go, oh, I don't feel very loving. It doesn't matter. It's, it's really basic. Do you do stuff that is loving? Are you going to act in ways that actually help? Are you more willing to say, do you know what? What I've got, you're welcome to have. What I've got, you're welcome to use. What I own is not my own. The radical possibility of a new community. And we'll talk about this again, perhaps when we've got a bit more time. But the, the idea that Paul had of these little churches with those cells of people loyal to Jesus. And people would look at them and go, do you know what? Whatever you can say about them. And people used to say the most horrible thing about early Christians sometimes. But they say, you can't deny that they love each other. And it was quite a bit of a conundrum for them because it's like, we don't understand them, but they do seem to love each other. It's why we've got to go from being individuals to community. Because I can't, I can't love you if I don't know you. And then this springs from the hope. The hope, Paul says... The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you've already heard in the true word of the gospel. This idea that... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use uh, Shirley as an example right now. You spoke earlier, so it's only your own fault. <laughs> Shirley, when she was talking about that reading that she had and that sort of like overspill of... All the things you're longing to see. You talked about signs and hopes. And then you said one thing. Uh, not one thing, but you said a lot of things. But one of the things you said was, uh, before I go. And you just sort of threw it in. Before I go. And uh, this is what I'm longing to see. And here's the interesting thing about people like Shirley. <laughs> <laughs> All right, one of the interesting things about people like Shirley is it's all about me. Um, <laughs> the amazing thing about people like Shirley is this, is she can say to you and me, before I go and not be frightened. She can say, before I go, without it being a tragedy. She can say, I've got, I've, I've got a longing here now. I'm going to live. And it's kind of like a longing to live until I die. A longing to live until I die. But then my hope is eternity. I don't know how you manage when you get to Shirley's grand age. <laughs> She'll never speak in church again. I don't know how you manage when you get to Shirley's grand age and you just go, to be honest, I'll live until I die, but then probably that's it. I don't know how you manage because I think actually at that point, all you'd be doing is thinking, do you know what? I wish I'd done more. I wish I'd packed more. I wish I'd experienced more. And just, it must, I don't, I mean, I'm nowhere near that age. But as you get older, you must, 
as you get older, isn't it the truth? Isn't it the truth as, as each of us get older, then you just have more regret because of the things you didn't do? Until and unless there's eternity. And if there's eternity and hope, I can live really well. Paul said, that faith in Jesus that won't let go, that love that you have for each other springs from hope. The hope that you heard in the gospel, the hope that God has his hand on history, the, the hope that all things are being worked out by God, the hope that eternity is our destiny and our reality, that what we have now is simply, simply a foretaste of all that's to come. Whatever you've received now is just a, like a glimpse of all that's to come. Faith, hope, and love. Now, some of you will know as well as I do that some have suggested that that sort of way of looking at life is just about managing to get through difficult lives. But what, you know, sort of like that Marxist idea that, you know, you, you pin it all on eternity so you don't actually have to engage now. I think it's exactly the opposite in the New Testament. What the New Testament realized was that community of faith, hope, and love, faith in Jesus, the radical Jesus who took on the powers, who brings people and puts them back together again. The love of new communities where you're not isolated. The hope that actually we can live daringly and riskily because actually we've got a bigger, bigger, bigger hope. That changes the world. That changes the world. A little while ago, I saw a film, a short film, um, that I want to show you. It's kind of like a parable. Some of you will have seen it because about 55 other million people have, so there's a fair chance that you will have. But I'm going to just ask that we play the film. And uh, we've got a time to reflect on it. Exciting scientific findings of the past half century has been the discovery of widespread trophic cascades. A trophic cascade is an ecological process which starts at the top of the food chain and tumbles all the way down to the bottom. And the classic example is what happened in the Yellowstone National Park in the United States when wolves were reintroduced in 1995. Now, we, we all know that wolves kill various species of animals, but perhaps we're slightly less aware that they give life to many others. Before the wolves turned up, they'd been absent for 70 years, but the numbers of deer, because there was nothing to hunt them, had built up and built up in the Yellowstone Park, and despite efforts by humans to control them, they managed to reduce much of the vegetation there to almost nothing. They just grazed it away. But as soon as the wolves arrived, even though they were few in number, they started to have the most remarkable effects. First, of course, they killed some of the deer, but that wasn't the major thing. 
Much more significantly, they radically changed the behavior of the deer. The deer started avoiding certain parts of the park, the places where they could be trapped most easily, particularly the valleys and the gorges. And immediately, those places started to regenerate. In some areas, the height of the trees quintupled in just six years. Bare valley sides quickly became forests of aspen and willow and cottonwood. And as soon as that happened, the birds started moving. The number of songbirds and migratory birds started to increase greatly. The number of beavers started to increase because beavers like to, to eat the trees. And beavers, like wolves, are ecosystem engineers. They create niches for other species. And the dams they built in the rivers um, provided habitats for otters and muskrats and ducks and fish and reptiles and amphibians. The wolves killed coyotes. And as a result of that, the number of rabbits and mice began to rise, which meant more hawks, more weasels, more foxes, more badgers. Ravens and bald eagles came down to feed on the carrion that the wolves had left. Bears fed on it too, and their population began to rise as well, partly also because there were more berries growing on the regenerating shrubs. And the bears reinforced the impact of the wolves by killing some of the calves of the deer. But here's where it gets really interesting. The wolves changed the behavior of the rivers. They began to meander less. There was less erosion. The channels narrowed. More pools formed. More riffle sections, all of which were great for wildlife habitats. The rivers changed in response to the wolves. And the reason was that the regenerating forests stabilized the banks so that they collapsed less often, so that the rivers became more fixed in their course. Similarly, by driving the deer out of some places and the vegetation recovering on the valley sides, there was a soil erosion because the vegetation stabilized that as well. So the wolves, small in number, transformed not just the ecosystem of the Yellowstone National Park, this huge area of land, but also its physical geography. As you might imagine, there's a, there's a bigger story and sometimes more complicated story than might be just there. But the fundamental truth is true. How do you change stuff that seems so unchangeable? You get one group of people who go, we're going to be who we are. That was really good news for everybody except deer. It struck me that. <laughs> but how, do you, how, how does a wolf change a river? If you'd have asked a wolf, can you change the course of the river, the wolf would have gone, don't be stupid. If you ask you and me, can you change how things are done around here? Can you change the way the world is? Most of us go, don't be stupid. We're not that big, we're not that strong, we're not that powerful. But if we do what we are called to be, people of faith in Jesus, 
people of love that spring from hope, what might be possible? So it's not a call to do more. It's a call to be who you are. For those of you that have bowed the knee before Jesus, you know the radical nature of Jesus. You know the healing power. You know the deliverance of Jesus. If that's not where you're at just yet, get in on it. (laughs) Get in on it. I want to belong to that story. And together, let us be that place where our love creates a community that tells a different story. But then when you go tomorrow morning to wherever you spend your day tomorrow, may you live it out because it flows out of who you are. We're going to pray together. We're going to take communion. I'm going to ask the, the folks with band and Hannah to come back and they'll lead us through this. But let us prepare our hearts. You don't need to do more. What you need to do is make your commitment to be, this is who I am, God. This is what you've called us to. I'm yours. When Paul wrote, he said, I just give thanks for who you are. Lord, will you help us to live this out? Lord, I thank you for Jesus who walked into our world and gave really good news. And Lord, for those of us who have heard that news and we've gripped onto it, Lord, may you do that work of change in our own lives. And Lord, we pledge our allegiance to you as Lord over and over again. We ask that you'd come and fill us and you'd cleanse us. And Lord, we might know the freedom that comes with forgiveness. Come, Holy Spirit, and rest on us. And Lord, as we take communion together, and we stand together, Lord, we come and we recognize in the bread the brokenness of a body of Jesus that was broken for us and a cup that was offered that we might be in a new relationship with the Father. And Lord, as we eat and drink, we do so with massive amounts of joy. And Lord, as we come down together to receive it, Lord, we recognize that we belong to one another, that, Lord, we can actually do each other remarkable amounts of good. Lord, help us to love one another in action, not just word. And, Lord, thank you for the hope that you placed in us. The hope, not just for our eternity, but for eternity. The hope that you've got your hand on this world. The hope that things will change. Lord, may you send us out to be the people you create us to be. Lord, as we take communion, we pray for your blessing upon us. For those who are broken, Lord, may your healing come. For those who are sick, may your healing come. For those of us who have really fouled up, Lord, may we know your forgiveness and start again. And may we do it without shame or guilt. Lord, we ask it in your name.
So as we take communion, we'd love to ask those who are going to serve just to come to the front and prepare for that. And in our church, what we do is we want to invite you firstly. And um, if you know, I'm a, I've kind of pledged my allegiance to this Jesus, I'm, I'm part of the team, then of course you're welcome. But it's more difficult for those of you that are not sure. And if you're really not sure, then it's okay not to. And nobody will look down on you. But it's okay not to. But at the same time, if you're going, I'm not sure where I stand, but I want to know this Jesus. Then you're welcome to come and receive with us. And uh, we come down the middle of the church. And then go around the aisles. Come and eat at the front and drink from the little cup at the front. And then walk back the outside, back to your seat. Come and receive the bread and wine that stand at the heart of our faith that make you who you are. Receive the grace and the love that means that you can demonstrate that through your life. In the name of Jesus.